Hey, what's happening, everybody? And welcome to another mind-altering, life-changing episode of Jazztopia. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, coming at you from East Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York. Hope everybody's doing very well out there in bizarro corona world. I know we've been in this for a little while, and, uh, you know, it's kind of wild times. Uh, we've got an election coming up. Uh, we've got winter is upon us. Uh, everything is in very mild chaos. But you know what? As improvisers, this may be our natural habitat. We've got to take the improvisation from the music and apply it to our real lives. We have to be on our toes and listening and appreciating the art and the people around us whenever we get to see them because sometimes it is rare. All right, let's try to keep it. We'll keep it short today. We'll get right to the we'll cut right to the chase, but there's a couple things happening. Uh there are some live performances happening here in New York City. Now there's not a lot of them because the only way to do it is if you're outdoors and everybody's socially distanced, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we do have one coming up on Saturday, October 24th at 6 p.m. Uh, Sarah McDonald's Chill Harmonic will be playing in Long Island City, Queens at Culture Lab LIC. Uh, once again, that is Saturday, October 24th at 6 p.m. You can catch the Chill Harmonic. It is a wild organization. It's a huge band. It's kind of a prog rock meets jazz huge band. I would say it's a big band, but it's huge. Uh, so check them out if you want to go outside and hang out and eat some burritos and drink some beer and hear some music in real life. There are also some places around New York that are doing live streams. Uh, of course, you can catch the live stream at Smalls all the time. So if you've got a subscription, or uh, I think you can even find them on Facebook, and they're accepting uh, donations of various kinds for the musicians. But you can always catch some really amazing music uh, from the live stream at Smalls. We also have the Soapbox Gallery on October 15th. I believe that's Friday, so it's coming out on Wednesday. you got to get, get up on it find it. The Frank Carlberg Trio uh, with a couple of folks are uh, playing, I believe, the music of Thelonious Monk. But check out the Soapbox Gallery. You can find that online. And uh, you can catch all the live streams around. If you've got any live streams you're doing, if, you're, uh, if you've got a special place where you find them, please send them along. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram at Bob Spellman or at Bobby Spellman Music, et cetera, et cetera. And send it along, and we'll, we'll promote your thing if you're doing something good. I'll be excited to see it, because I'm always interested to hear some new music. All right, one more thing. Uh, the great guitarist Lucas Brody just put out an album entitled Vague Sense of Virtue. You can find that on Lucas Brody's Bandcamp. If you're not hip to Lucas Brody's music, get with it. He is an amazing, amazing guitar player and incorporates a disparate range of styles. Uh, he finds himself often in free music land, and uh, he's always coming up with some really great stuff. So check that out. Once again, Vague Sense of Virtue. All right, well, this week I'm happy to have on the program the award-winning trombonist, composer, and arranger Dr. Javier Nero. Now, Javier has just released his debut album uh, on Outside In Music entitled Freedom. Uh, it is a beautiful record. It came out in August, so it's been around for a minute, but as far as I'm concerned, still brand new. Uh, there's a lot of great tracks on there. It's a stylistically very diverse, very interesting album. It recorded beautifully. Uh, beautiful playing, uh, really amazing stuff. So you can check that out wherever you find your music. If you get a chance to buy a copy, it's always a big help to the musicians. If you can, I mean, it makes all the difference in the world if you can buy a copy of the album and support the music and make it a little bit easier for them to create the next hit, the next hit record. 
Anyway, it was great having Javier on the program. We had a lot of fun talking about his approach to recording the album, the origins of many of the songs, blending various styles into one set-like performance in an album setting, and his philosophies in balancing the improvisational nature of the music with the stringent compositional approach to making sure everything works the way that you want it to. Now, there was a little controversy in there, in fact. We got, we got into some kind of interesting philosophical points, and uh, we had a lot of fun. Uh, now, before we get going here, I just want to say I had one little technical difficulty in uh, recording this where something must have cut out at some point. So you may hear it switch over to our Zoom conversation, but I'm going to try to EQ it nice for you so you barely even notice. All right. All right. Well, here he is. Without further ado, Dr. Javier Nero. Great, man. Well, we're here today to talk about your new album, Freedom, on Outside In. I got that right, right? I always want to say inside out, outside in. Uh, when did it, when was it released? When did you release it? A couple last month? Uh, yeah, August 7th. All right. You've joined the ranks of people releasing albums during the, the COVID lockdown <laughs> experience. Yep. Now, it's an eclectic record. You've got a lot of, I would say, different styles of music on there. But in my ear, and I think you might have taken a little flack for that, uh, from one review, but to my ear, it sounds very cohesive. Like it sounds like everything belongs there, even though you've got so many different instruments and different bands in some respects. I'm not exactly sure how much the um, personnel changes, but I wanted to start out by asking you, how do you think about what pieces to put on an album or how to put this together? And do you think about the cohesion despite, uh, let's say, varying styles of music on one record? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, like, those are not really considerations that I really think about as far as, like, on on, on an album level. I, I mean, like, I, I was really just thinking about um, making it like a performance, you know? Like, mm -hmm. how, would I, how would I keep people's attention in real life if we were playing a set of music? Um, so, like, you know, it starts off with the fast, up-tempo swing and then we do something different right away. I think the next tune is a 7-4, uh, like Latin samba type feel. Mm -hmm. And then and then after that uh, is like the kind of more modern jazz tune, and then like a more fusion thing, and then the ballad, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I mean, I, my idea behind the album was, number one, just picking um, a good mix of the music that I've written that I think is actually good enough for an album. Um, but also, I've been writing for such a long time. I started writing a lot of septets music since like 2010, and so it's been like 10 years of culminating. So like this album, a lot of the music is actually pretty old. Mm -hmm. um, some of the stuff is like a little bit more uh, recent. So I was kind of trying to get a good mix of like my older compositions that I think deserve to be recorded, while also showcasing some of the stuff that um, uh, I've been doing more recently, while also taking into consideration. Um, trying to keep people's interest from start to finish. So sure. those were like those were like the main considerations. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's interesting the idea of, of treating the album almost as a performance because when we play gigs, it, it would be completely unsurprising to do a bossa nova followed by a sw you know swing tune followed by yeah. a whole like, like you could have, have a fast Waller tune next to a Wayne shorter tune and almost nobody's going to bat an eye. But exactly, uh, yeah. So it's just I guess it's the same principle. Put an album together. Is this your debut album as a leader? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So how long have you been working on it? Or maybe how, what's the oldest tune you've got on here? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, 2010 is probably, or maybe 2009 even. Actually, the ballad um, I wrote uh, on the album called Just Let Go, I wrote um, like the summer of my freshman year of undergrad. So that was like 2009, probably like around, you know, maybe September, August 2009. Uh, and then a few of the songs, Reality was written in 2010. Um, there's a few, yeah, I mean, there's kind of a, a large span there. Sure. It's pretty good when you got those, when they hold up, when you can, you still like them after that amount of time. It's worth yeah, you know, like sure. it, it's, it's been interesting to listen back because some of my, my earlier stuff, like I think this kind of tends to happen with a lot of artists is like when you first start writing, it's like anything that's kind of been absorbed at any point in your life, no matter where it's from, seems to come out. And sure. so like, like, so like your first like 10 compositions are like extremely different. Mm -hmm. You know, they're completely like, and then, and then as you kind of find more of what like your thing is, then it starts to be like a little bit less, um, diverse. Um, I actually kind of try to avoid that. You know, sometimes I, I feel like, Hey, I'm kind of writing the same tune again, same vibe, same types of chords, same types of root movement, but I'm almost like, it's like, I'm just kind of rearranging it. Sure. You know, and I've been trying yeah, yeah, to yeah. like force myself out of that by continually trying to take in new information and, you know, but. Sure. Do you do that consciously or do you find yourself just listening to all kinds of different music that finds its way into your writing? I guess it's not that like conscious. Um, it's conscious but at, at the point when I finally start like writing a tune and then I start realizing like small little idioms that I've, that I've written in like several of my arrangements. Like there'll be certain types of intervallic things that I notice I use all the time, you know? Mm -hmm. Almost like almost like themes that seem to come back that I can't get out of my ear. Um, but generally speaking, when I'm listening to music, I just find stuff that I like and I listen to that. Sure. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, I've actually come under fire for that a lot, too, because I, I bet like, you know, as compared to a lot of the really real jazz heads in New York City, there's like a lot of classic albums that I've never really checked out. Ooh, because I've just because I've just never really been into it, you know. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I'll, I'll like maybe I'll arrive at it like years later, you know, mm -hmm. something that everyone's been telling me to listen to, uh, you know, and then I finally like, oh, this is really awesome. They're like, you're just now hearing that, and I'm like, yeah, sure. dude, I wasn't into it before, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's important though, because there have been instances in which I've heard, you know, a bunch of my friends are like, this came out, you got to check this out. And uh, and then I I listen to it. I'm just not in the mood to listen to it at the time when it for whatever reason. And it could be like a day, or it could be a week, or a month, or whatever. But I think sometimes if you force yourself to dig into something that you're not really uh, for whatever reason open to at that time, you know, you can get bogged down on it, or it can be like you, you have like bad vibes attached to it, or something like that. But sometimes you yeah, just have to wait know. until that's the right time to check it out. You know? Yeah. Plus, nobody does the thing where it's like. There's nobody in the world started off like, well, I'm going to start at the beginning of jazz and work my way through every album <laughs> or whatever. Like, you f I found, you know, early Louis Armstrong recordings, like, when I was in grad school or something like that. I had heard that music before, but, you know, and then other things, more modern things I heard later or something, or, or whatever, you know, who knows? You, you yeah, see, I mean, th that's actually funny because, like, my experience has been very similar. My dad was, like, has always been, like, a big jazz fan. So I grew up hearing like Herbie records and my dad was really into like kind of like the 70s Freddie Hubbard stuff, mm -hmm. um, like First Light, uh, Red Clay. I don't know if that was 70s. Maybe it was late 60s. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a, I think early 70s, but somewhere in there. 69, yeah. 70 something. But like there's a bunch of those types of albums where they're kind of like funk influenced and like mm -hmm. a little bit more electronic fusion. And that's like was kind of like my like early 
influence. I kind of had that stuff in my ear when I first started playing jazz. And then when I got to school here in New York, that's when I actually started listening to like bebop. I never mm -hmm. listened to like bebop at all. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? Sure. So like mm -hmm. I was kind of more proficient at improvising like over like more modal and like third moving root movements, like Wayne Shorter tunes and stuff like that. Um, and like playing on rhythm changes, for instance, was something that was not easy for me. Sure. And I had mm -hmm. to go backwards, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's take a little time now to go back in time here and 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 get into your your origin story here. So what was it that <laughs> brought you to the trombone the trombone in the first place? And how, you know how long have you been right? What what brought you into that world? Because you really got to commit uh, to be a <laughs> to be a professional trombone player in the modern age. Yeah, I mean, like um, I was never someone that was like ever particularly interested in music. Um, what ended up happening is my parents. Uh, forced me to join band when I entered when I entered into the sixth grade we moved from um, the Seattle area in Washington um, to Vancouver Washington which is um, south so it's really close to Portland Oregon I usually just tell people I'm from Portland Oregon because mm -hmm. it's too confusing for people sure um, <laughs> but anyway um, when I when I started in school there um, we I was starting middle school in sixth grade and my my mom had found a uh, trombone for $65 at a garage sale of like one of our family friends was selling. He had all these, he's also a jazz fan too, has also been someone that's been a supporter uh, of my career and music since I've started basically. Um, but he collects all these instruments and he was selling one. And my mom bought it, brought it home and said, you have to play this. <laughs> that's pretty good. Because at, at that point I'd already been forced to join band and I started by um, on percussion. So I was playing, I had like a little, one of those little drum pads and some sticks and I was supposed to learn how to like, you know, do the paradiddles and the roll. And sure. then my mom brought the trombone and canceled canceled my drum career. And <laughs> Maybe so, a wise choice for parents. <laughs> I think that's a, yeah, that's a slick sure. play as a parent. Oh yeah. Interesting. So and then you just stuck with it from there. It's off to the races, man. You got the yeah, trombone. I mean, like, yeah, I mean like the, the band program um, in my area was really good, like the public school band programs. Um, it was like pretty intense. They had the marching bands. We did the parade bands. They had jazz band, and they also had um, pretty serious wind, wind and concert bands. Also, um, so I was like pretty immersed in the in like the music thing as soon as I started, and made a lot of good friends in in the band program that I'm still friends with today. So I think that like social element is really part of the the biggest reason I stuck with it for so long. Um, sure. And then at a certain point, it, I started to actually really find fulfillment doing it as well. Mm hmm. Do you find how has the last six months of lockdown affected the music for you because of the social element? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I miss playing with with other musicians, obviously. Um, I mean, that's that's like the sure. biggest thing. <laughs> yeah. But like right. as, as, as far as like playing piano and. And like, you know, playing on my instrument, in some ways I've actually felt like more inspired at times than, mm -hmm. than before. Sometimes you get bogged down on the scene, like just like going from gig to gig that I feel like a lot of times we take time away from focusing on the things that we actually want to do and the things that actually made us want to be a musician in the first place. Like, I mean, I, I was doing like a lot of um, kind of like commercial top 40s types gigs. And um, I actually recently started playing in like the Hasidic um, Jewish community, like doing a lot of those types of jobs too. And, mm -hmm. I, and I actually, I enjoy all of that, 
all of those different types of music. But sure. sometimes, like when you're just hustling and just doing all this stuff, you know what I mean? You you lose you lose focus. Oh sure. And so in some ways, yeah, like the the quarantine has been nice because now anytime I play, I'm playing just for me. You know? Yeah. Sure. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I asked because it seems in my beginning it was the same in that you you start to get into it because it's a social thing and you, you have like. I mean, the music was always interesting to me, but you have like these these groups, or the or your friends are in it, and you're like you're around people who are in it, and the whole scene. Even coming to New York, like the scene is so wild that you just want to be a part of the whole thing. But yeah. it definitely changes the character of it to be sort of. It's I've found being in my own head has been both what you're talking about, which is that you can dive into that which you've sort of put on the back burner for a little while, and like really get into some music and practice and like write and get into some new stuff. But there's also a funny side of it, which is that, like, man, you know, you want to be out there hanging out with people and playing music and, like, interacting, especially in, in an improvisational art form, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that I usually get really, like, um, like, discouraged with as far as, like, the quarantine or just playing music with other people is actually writing. For mm -hmm. some, like, like, in the last few years, like, because I've done, like, a lot of big band writing and large ensemble writing. And generally when I'm writing, it's either it's, it's for the septet or like or larger. And I get kind of down sometimes because it's like, why am I going to spend all this time writing this chart for it to sit on my computer? Right. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I like, totally get so, it. So, so I feel like I still I'm still kind of like constantly like thinking of new ideas and sketching them out like in my head. And I like play piano a lot of times with like these different drum apps and stuff and come up with cool ideas and stuff. But as far as actually getting to the computer and actually writing it out, somehow I have like this blockage from doing it unless I know that it's going to be performed. Sure. But like if I had a gig next week for like my big band, then I'd probably write like three charts this week. Yeah. You know what the, I mean? Yeah. Oh, the deadline is huge. Without yeah. the deadline, it's hard. I've been trying. I'll also I'll get through most of a chart writing it in. And I'll be like, nah, I'll figure out the rest of this later. And then it'll be like, you know, the night before the next gig happens that I'll finish all that, you know, what have you. But. Yeah, yeah, the deadline's a big deal. I could see how that would how that would go. Uh, so, oh, I'll tell you the other thing is, uh, man, I'll tell you the next time I have to play Sir Duke or September or one of these things, <laughs> I'm gonna be I'm gonna be psyched, man. For a long time, I was like, I don't know how many more times I can play Superstition, and now like when I get back on that train, dude, I'm gonna be all about the Stevie stuff. <laughs> and not if there's anything wrong with Stevie Wonder, but when you're for anybody out there who hasn't played a hundred thousand weddings, after a while you start to wonder what you're doing, you know. <laughs> so you start. So high, you graduate high school. Where'd you go to school? Uh, my high school was just um, uh, public high school. It's called Evergreen High School. But you were talking sure. about undergrad, right? College. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Just, you're yeah, a doctor, I, right? Yeah. Maybe the first person on the program is a full doctor of jazz. <laughs> Whatever that means. Yeah, sure. I'm we'll a, find I'm out. A I'm, find I'm a doctor. Out, I, I hold a doctorate degree in a in a in a subject that is a word that is offensive to many people for some reason. Is that right? <laughs> what? Wait, what is it? Jazz? Yeah, I hope Nicholas Payton's not listening to this right now. <laughs> I hope he is. I'm a I'm a doctor of jazz, Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think we're gonna be okay, man. I don't think anybody's gonna be too. I well, I hope I'm open to the to the hate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so where'd you start? Where'd you start? Where'd you? Where's your undergrad? Oh, um, I ended up going to uh, the Juilliard School here in New York City. Oh, okay, sure. That's where I went, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, for my master's degree, I studied uh, what was called the studio and studio music and jazz is like the like the the performance degree at University of Miami. And mm -hmm. I was in this I was in the studio jazz writing 
uh, department, okay. which was basically like a jazz composition um, degree, but also had like an element of studio. So I was like supposed to learn how to run like the, the sound boards and, and uh, learn how to record and stuff. So oh, that that's actually, awesome. Yeah, that was a really helpful degree. And then For the sure. DMA, um, I moved back into the performance side of things. Um, I was still studying composition privately also um, as part of the degree. Um, but technically, the degree was uh, studio music and jazz again. Was that a, is that Miami as well? Yeah, yeah. So my, my master's and my doctorate were both at University of Miami. Oh, cool. Man, that's yeah. something else. So is there a dis- this is a side note here, but is there a distinguishing thing then between jazz composition there and the, st- the studio, the composition and the studio stuff? No, I mean, there's just, it's just one degree. It's called studio slash jazz writing. Sure. So like all, all of the writers were kind of like, while simultaneously studying orchestration and the arranging all that stuff, we were also the ones that uh, what we were, our culminating project was for us to actually record, compose, and then record our own music and mix it, mm-hmm. et cetera. So. Man, that's huge. That's a hugely helpful approach. That's a little bit like I was thinking about in uh, at Berkeley, for example. I spent two semesters at Berkeley, and there's a distinguish. There's they distinguish between um, composition and pro music and some other things like that. You know, music production and engineering and what have you. But it's a big deal to have that all wrapped up into one because nowadays, if you can write, you know, you can get away with writing big band charts and just having people play them in real time. But without that, uh, the technology or understanding how the recording side of it goes, you're at a huge disadvantage, I think. Yeah, um, it was actually really interesting because I, I think, like, generally speaking, people at University of Miami are way more tech savvy than, like, the like my colleagues at Juilliard. Like, a lot of people, I think, um, on that end were just very, you know, very jazz nerds. Like, we're, like, learning tunes and we're learning how to play really well. But on, on as far as, like, the recording and technology and like the state of the art kind of things happening in the music industry, I feel like people weren't as in touch. Mm-hmm. And, then, and I think they, had, they ended up having to learn those things outside of school. Whereas that degree for me allowed me to do it like right at the same time. And it was quite a bit of like a learning curve. Like I had no idea what anything was, was when I first got there because we never did it in undergrad. I was just playing tunes and learning how to play trombone. We never really sure. talked about any of like the real life aspects of recording and making music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how that's how it was at, at New England Conservatory as well. And that yeah. you get like it's very centric, you know, centered on the art itself, yeah. which is great in its own for its own thing. But then it, it is very helpful, I think, to have that the background in technology, especially nowadays, especially at this very moment in time when now you've got everybody who's you got to be able to piece together a video or put together yeah, exactly, a recording exactly. on the fly from your house or something, you know. Yeah, everyone had to learn now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you so as soon as you graduated, you came back to New York. Uh, actually, I stayed out there for one more year after I finished, and uh, that's actually that summer is when I um, uh, recorded this album. So I, I graduated in May of 2017, and then I recorded in May of 2018. Okay. Yeah. At, in in Miami. Yeah, I actually recorded at the uh, studio there at the uh, university. It's oh, the cool. Weeks, the Weeks Recording Studio. Oh, that's great. So yeah. you already had a familiarity with the the environment. Yeah. You're, you were in it. Man, I'll tell you, the, the, the whole album sounds great. It sounds super clean, like a very modern sounding, like you can, everything is, you can hear everything. It's, it sounds like you have a background in this, that you really knew what you were getting into <laughs> going into it. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm pretty, like, particular about the way 
I want things to to sound like obviously like in the music itself and the way the perform the musicians are performing, but also like I I feel like I had like a certain idea of how I wanted the instruments to sound like in the mix and stuff and like panning is like a big thing too, um, you know making sure you can really hear sonically the place of each instrument. Um, I didn't really, you know, like obviously I had an engineer that like kind of understood what I wanted, so I wasn't really there turning knobs or doing anything. Sure, of course. You, you don't want to. Yeah. If you got to lead the band, it's chaos if you got to yeah. be thinking about how to capture the thing as well. But at least you knew, it, it seems like maybe, you know, it seems like you knew where you were going anyway, that you were like, this is the spot and we're going to make it sound such and such a way. Yeah, and uh, our, my engineer is a uh, trombone player, actually. His name is uh, Chris Palowicz. We, we played in the uh, CJB at University of Miami together. And uh, I think that that actually gave him like a very unique uh, touch on that end of things, too, because a lot of times, as you know, you end up with engineers that even though they know all of the technical knobs and things to do, they don't actually know what like a trombone is supposed to sound like. Sure. They don't know what a saxophone is supposed to sound like. So like even though they're doing things that are supposed to make music sound better, they don't know what that instrument's supposed to sound like. So then like they're kind of there's like a, a disconnect in sometimes. So sure. it was good to have a musician that performs that also no doubt. engineering, you know. Yeah. And and in particular probably a brass player. I know that this isn't to be I'm trying to catch myself before I insult all of the uh all the engineers, but uh, you know, so I've heard a lot of recordings where people be like, trumpets, got it. Let's turn up the highs. We're going to really kick this thing into gear, you know? <laughs> and you're like, well, that may not be exactly what we're going for here, you know? But if you got people who know the deal, that's a, that's a big weight off your shoulders to be able to say like, all right, this is, I trust the people that are running exactly. this operation. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. I don't know. I, I'm sure it's the same with any style of music. I mean, like there are punk rock records where everything was just an SM57 on a, whatever and like live in a room in a small room where you know Iggy Pop just went nuts or whatever and that's part of the vibe but jazz music maybe now in particular has such a wide range because if as sort of an improvising art form there's a question as to how much of it you want to be in the room and how much of the room do you how live do you want it to sound how like kind of uh, let's say raw would you want it to sound like there's some of my favorite recordings are were recorded all in one room and it was like it's chaos you know what I mean but it still sounds really good and then there's other recordings that are recorded in a more modern way where everything's isolated and you can you can, you have a lot more um, let's say control over what you know fixing errors or having solos come in or whatever um, did you did you think about how did you go about thinking about like all right this is this is how much we're gonna have the capability of changing this on the fly and how much of it is going to be like a live room kind of vibe. Yeah. Uh, that's something to be honest, like, and if I ever record again, I think that I'm going to spend more time thinking exactly about that. Um, because what I really wanted to do is I wanted to just record, um, the horn parts. Like, I mean like the whole band, but then leave out the solo so everyone could really make sure that they could play as, as well as they could. Mm -hmm. But that didn't end up happening. Like all of the other horn players played live just on their takes. Like, so we did like a couple different takes of each tune. We chose the best ones. Um, and a few of my solos were live. And then a few of them um, I overdubbed too. Um, mm -hmm. But I think like ultimately... I can see how like a purist would say, oh, well, you should play everything live. You want it to have that blah, blah, blah. But to me, it's like it's like a photo, you know, this is like a photograph. You want to hear the music the best it can it can sound. And I'm not really necessarily 
worried about if it's exactly the way it would have sounded if it were live. I'm excited. I'm, 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 I'm wanting it to sound the best it can sound. You know what I mean? The same thing, like if you post a photo on Instagram, if you got like a professional photo, you spent money on it, you want them to make those finishing touches before you, you, before you put it out. And this was kind of like a mix of like live and, and overdub, mostly just on me. All, like all of the other instrumentalists played, like all of their solos were live. But I think in the future, I would actually want it to be a little bit more controlled. Okay. And um, maybe I would do the rhythm section first and then do the horns next to try to get everything really, really clean. Mm -hmm. You know? Sure. I wonder if, is there an approach to doing that? It'd be interesting to talk to like people who produce jazz records on the regular to try to figure out, you know, the, the different philosophies on this. But I wonder if there's a way to, to do that where you can still get as, you know, the maximum amount of interaction. Like, uh, maybe as an example, recently I was, I was recorded a big band demo, but I did it from everybody records their own part in their houses because it was back in March or something or April or whatever it was. And nobody could, there's no way to, even now we can't get a big band together practically, yeah. you know? And, uh, it was tricky trying to figure out, okay, how do you sort of, how do you maintain the concept of interaction and improvisation without having a live band in real time? Well, like, I mean, if, if you did the rhythm section first and then say, like, it's like a quartet record, the rhythm section records, um, are you talking, like, one at a time or just rhythm section together? Rhythm section together. Like, imagine if you, even if you just record, let's say, even just you're recording solos after the fact, like, part of the sound is the interaction between the rhythm section and the soloist. So it's a little, it's, the tricky thing in that is to figure out, if you're playing a rock solo, you just, you're jamming out. Like, everybody's just going to go nuts and you're going to yeah. play your, you know, you're going to, fall on the floor and play your wild soul or whatever but like in this kind of a context it's an interesting thing to try to navigate how to make the interactive element of it come through even when you're interacting with somebody who's playing after you you know rather than at the same time yeah well plenty of people don't listen even when it's happening at the right at the same time <laughs> anyway so <laughs> that is certainly but, true but like yeah. i mean i don't know i mean like like if if i was recording to like a uh like a Jamie Abersold track or something like that, especially if you do a few different takes, you start to get a feel for how they played and you can interact with them, even mm -hmm. if they're not responding back. You know what I mean? So you can like, I guess it's just, it's a little bit more one-sided. You have to kind of fit into what they're doing as opposed to both people trying to fit in at the same time. Sure. But I, but I think it could still, it can still sound, I don't know. I mean, like, like to me, that type of thing is like, that's like the last like 3% of a record. I don't, I don't know that like anyone would really, hear, especially like a large ensemble record. I don't think that anyone would hear, uh, a big band record and be like, ah, that sounds really good. But did you notice how the trumpet player played this and no one reacted to it? Yeah. Sure, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. Like, yeah. Like for, for instance, like, um, hopefully I won't get in trouble for the sake. He probably doesn't care. We're going to um, get in trouble, baby. We're going in. We're, <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to get canceled, man. We've already um, got Nick Payton on the phone, dude. <laughs> Well, like uh, B Brian Lynch's new record that I think he's, uh, I think he won the Grammy for it, the uh, Latin American Songbook. Is that what it was called? I can't remember. It sounds exactly. right. Something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember exactly what it is. I feel bad to not to not quote it right. But I know I know that they they did like a lot of tracking on that record. So they did like the rhythm section, um, and then they did like the the trombones, saxes, um, trumpets. And then, like, you know, maybe, like, auxiliary percussion instruments later, voices later, strings later, you know. I don't know if there's strings. Sure. But, like, I'm just saying, like, I know, I know that that happened. And um, also with, uh, 
I, I also recorded on one of um, John Diverse's records when I was down at UM um, that was also Grammy nominated. And that was that one was like just like that. I actually went in by myself one time and recorded like all of the all of the trombone parts by myself. Oh wow! You know what I mean? Not sure. all of them, but like all of the the different tunes. Um, okay, gotcha. So like, you know what I mean? Like who like knows? At, yeah, yeah. At at a, at a certain point, you know, I mean, like, and even like you think about like other styles of music, like rock music or or uh, classical music, even like if you play the notes correctly, then the music, the energy is there from the actual composition. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be like this super artsy, hippie, organic, natural. Sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose it depends on the... I mean, it's all just the color of what you're going for in, in some respect. Like, if I listen to an old, like... Uh, I don't know if I can come up with a good example on the fly, but, like, if you're listening to an old Thad Jones, Mel Lewis record... Like, some of those live performances really, you wouldn't necessarily notice if it wasn't there, but that, like, the live nature of it, the interaction and the improvisational quality of it, or even, like, the way that, if you ever see videos, like, the way that Thad would, would conduct the band a lot of the time had such, like, a, an atmosphere to it. But that's a very different thing than if you're going for, like, maybe one of the things that I'm trying to avoid is that tendency especially in jazz world i think we love to be elitists for some reason but of that thing that's like this is the right way to do it and if you're off the thing you're the wrong it's the wrong that's you know but and at the end of the day it really depends on what color you're going for or what you're aiming well at, you well know? like th th that's actually it's funny because i i think that uh i want my music to sound as close to like exactly what i was intending as possible so like if people miss notes I would prefer them not to do that. <laughs> right. Sure. You know what I mean? Whereas like, I feel like some people will like literally like defend that like miles solo on such and such record actually sounds better because he missed the note. But like, that's to me is kind of like, doesn't make sense because it's like, if you respect miles Davis's uh, artistry, then actually what he intended to play actually would have been better because he was trying to play something. He just couldn't do it. So you actually think what he messed up was better than what he intended? So you're actually kind of insulting his artistry in that way. It, that's an interesting point, actually. I think that's an interesting point, and it may speak to the, your approach and your style in general. But I, <laughs> well, what I'll say is I agree in... Uh, let me think. Like, I would be one of those people who would defend Miles's mistakes or the sound of the thing, or I really love Don Cherry, and the sound oh, of Don... Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be ripe with controversy, man. I'm out of here. I know. All right. I appreciate the. I appreciate the the uh, the dissent, man. But I'll tell you. <laughs> but one of the, what I like about Don Cherry is that it sound. You can hear him going for it. Like it's something like you don't always know that he knew what was gonna happen before it happened. But he really <laughs> he's going for it, and it comes out something that even you wouldn't expect because it's something that he. You know, we don't know. If he exactly would have expected, maybe he would. I'm not saying you know either way, but like there's a sense with him and a lot of other certainly free musicians where it's like, all right, you're really going for it, and whether you stick the landing is sort of secondary. However, in my own recordings, I've never been disappointed that I fixed a mistake. There have been times in the studio where I'm like, well, it's kind of a character thing. Do I keep this fracked note or whatever? Do I keep this other thing? And then for the rest of my life, anytime I listen to the thing, I've never been like, man, I should have kept that mistake in there. Yeah. So I see it from both ends. But again, it depends on the style. Like if you're listening 
to a Maria Schneider record and somebody just like completely, you know, cracks a nut, like just or misses a thing or whatever, there's like a section doesn't come in right, it's not going to fly. But if you're listening to, I don't know, if you're, lis- there's, if you're listening to, I don't know, like the Art Ensemble of Chicago, I don't even know how you'd know, like, well, that didn't sound like it was perfectly executed, you know, it just depends on the style. Well, I guess like like, and I'm gonna sound offensive what I say. It just, Great, it's let's just gonna, do there's, it. Man. There's no way. There's no way to say it. Well, I think that music that's t- where where there's been less planning and less organization is capable of sounding like there was less planning and and less organization when it's performed and it's more acceptable in those styles. So like so like like a free jazz type of. Uh, uh, ensemble. If something goes wrong, no one thinks something went went wrong because they didn't know what was going to happen, and it wasn't. It never sounded like they knew what was supposed to happen. You know what I mean? Sure. And same mm-hmm. and same thing with like um, if you're like listening to like a band playing tunes, and they're just calling tunes. They didn't have any arrangements. They didn't really put in any thought into the actual product before they did it. Then I think it's more acceptable when we hear moments of thoughtlessness. You know what I mean? But sure. I also, but I also kind of like, in some ways, I'm kind of against that, because I think that that's actually kind of one of the biggest problems in the jazz industry is that we're constantly serving up stuff that we didn't even think to put together. We're like presenting something that we've never actually put any thought into, and then we wonder why people don't want to come hear it. When people go listen to music, they want to hear, they want to, they they want to see a finished product, and they want to see something that's actually put together and that you've put time and effort into. It's like you don't want to go, maybe sometimes, I'm like a big foodie, maybe if there was like a really famous chef and I knew that he's like just like cooks random stuff every night and you could go to his <laughs> restaurant and just eat whatever he's cooking, I would do that sometimes, but I still think the restaurants that are the most important, uh, that are the most, uh, uh, that sell the most, that people really love the most are the ones where they go there and they know what they're expecting and they get exactly the exact product that the chef they put together the menu, they put together the decor, they really thought of everything, and then people go there and they get the experience that they know that they're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just doesn't happen very often in jazz, and when it doesn't, we excuse it as saying it's artistic. Sure. Interesting. I wonder how how the... Um, it's an interesting analogy with the food because I'm trying to piece it together, and I'm wondering if it works the same way improvisationally. But I wonder if there's another... Um, because you wouldn't want somebody to just be like... Like if you go to somebody's house and they're like, "This is what I had in my fridge." Like I had a, oh yeah, I didn't, I didn't really think about it in advance. But here's what we have to work with. That may be different than going to a five star restaurant and hoping that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna well, have it together. But, but that's exactly what we're doing with, uh, with like a lot of tunes. Like I mean, I mean not tunes, but with with gigs. Like people, you go, you know, maybe you go to uh, the Django or something like that, and they're playing on or in the the Roxy. They always have like like kind of quartets and small groups playing. Mm-hmm. Um, those bands actually usually sound pretty polished, actually. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, I lost my train of thought. I had something. So you like want that. it to be your your <laughs> vibe is you want it to feel pre-play. You want to know that this is very specifically what was going into this in advance. Well, I, it doesn't necessarily have to be that. I just want it to uh, to be executed well. You don't have to know what's going on, but you have to sell it. Mm-hmm. And I think sure. that we're we're too comfortable knowing that we sounded bad. And knowing that we're not giving people our best, and and you'll even hear people on gigs being like, ah, well, this gig doesn't matter; it's only fifty bucks. You'll even hear people excusing their behavior, sounding sure. bad, and they know they sound bad, and saying that it's fine because 
because I'm just great instrumentalist. I have really great technique and great sound in my instrument. So sure. even though I performed poorly, it's still great because look at how great I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, I definitely agree with you on that. I mean, there's no sense in doing it. I, in, in my mind, any gig, if you're not going to give it, you know, if you're not going to give it your all. Sometimes yeah, yeah. Some, some things turn out better than others. But if we're going to commit ourselves to this insane lifestyle, you might as well really commit to the art, you know, at least make yeah. the best that you can. I will say, I guess you're not much of a free jazz guy. Nah. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, man. Hey, That's what hey, it's all I'm, about. I'm always willing to re-listen to stuff, though, because just like I was saying to you before, it's like there's certain things that people have been telling me to check out for years, and then I go back and listen to them later, and then I love it. So, mm -hmm. you know, Maybe after, your time, after, after, you yeah, after this, send me some stuff. I'm always willing will, to re-listen. I certainly you know? will. Yeah. That's, that's what comes to mind is... is um, I know growing up in Boston, free music is a big part of the scene. It's sort of intertwined with everything else. It's not like a separate thing. I, I don't know if that comes from like the tradition of Jackie Byard and, and George Russell and like um, uh, Sam Rivers and people being there who had this sort of inside outside approach, uh, Maconda, Ken McIntyre, people like that. But I wonder if, uh, but uh, some of the best shows I've seen in my experience have been in small rooms where people are f completely improvising. But to me, it's a, it's almost like listening to two different things. Like, what's a good example? Like, if I go to a folk... No, I don't know if this is going to be... Okay, if I go to see a folk singer or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I want them... And they wrote these, like, songs, these polished songs with, you know, and it's got a vibe to it. I want that vibe out of that. I don't want it to be, like, complete random, well, I forgot the lyrics, and, like, you know, like, I'm going to try something totally... You know, maybe there's something to it that's like, all right, this this should be polished, or this should be the way that it was intended in some... You know, or the way that I expect it. But there's a lot of music that even just for, like, the one moment where everything comes together and it's, like, these magical improvisational experiences, that, to me, is worth even a part of the performance being people trying to find what it is that they're going for. Like, there's an energy to it in the same way there would be in, like, a punk rock performance or, um, I don't know, maybe some more, like, improvisational. Like, sometimes it can go off the rails, but to me, maybe I like the danger a little bit, you know? Maybe yeah, the I danger mean, is worth the, the, the final result. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, I think that we're both trying to pursue some type of definition for something that we haven't quite figured out, because I think there's probably a lot more uh, places where we agree. Like, for instance, like, I... I'm thinking about like a classical music performance, like say like the Rite of Spring or um, something that's pretty difficult, like technically for like all the instruments and musicians involved. Every time that piece is performed, it's going to be performed a little bit different and it's going to be very difficult every time. Um, and so there's always that danger is always there, but there's a preparedness that no matter what happens, it's going to be it's going to be like at a high like level. It's going to be like in the 95th percentile as far as accuracy. And to me, that shows like a certain, that shows like a certain, like, like a, a, a certain level to be able to like to do that, even when you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Maybe you're performing the same piece, but now you have a new conductor and you don't know how fast it's going to go at certain places or how he's going to do certain things. And or maybe they drop their score and like then the orchestra has to keep playing. You know what I mean? For sure. some reason, those types of situations um, when in, in the classical music world are still handled with like a certain level of of uh, of like grace. You know, and they're sure. still like a, and there's still a high level of proficiency. But I've literally heard like like jazz bands where it just sounds like just bad, you know, and like my band sure. is one of them. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? It's like 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 people will you send the music out ahead of time. You know, people don't check out the charts. You you you're on you're on stage at the gig. Gig doesn't pay anything, but I don't care about that. You know, hopefully no one else does. Sure, obviously obviously they do. Right, and and we just like train wreck. You know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then you'll have people excusing that type those types of things happening. I don't know. Right. Well, that I certainly agree. I think that it's it's. I think you're. I don't want to say morally obligated, but whatever. We're already in trouble. So I would say you are morally <laughs> obligated to to give your all to whatever it is that you're doing. If you're going to be an artist and you're going to show up and play and you've dedicated your life to this, it's another issue if you said, I got into this because I wanted to make money. First of all, not a good play. If anybody's <laughs> listening to this and is like coming up and is thinking about getting into jazz to make money, you may need to try some other thing, you know, or whatever, or music in general. But... You know, if you're like, all right, I want to play drums in a in a um, in like a club date band or whatever, play weddings and stuff, and I just want to get paid. That's a different vibe. But if you're, but even then, anything that you agree to do, I think that you're obligated to give it your all and to play and and really mean it, even if it's not the most high paying, even whatever the pay might be. Like you've committed to this as your life. Exactly. That's my feeling on it. Whether yeah, or not yeah, that yeah. was accepted by, you know, the masses is another issue. Yeah, because because like I mean, there's a certain. Um uh, there's a certain like percentage of things that I that, that are, I feel like is acceptable. Like people not knowing. Like obviously, I don't want people to know what. Like neither one of us is arguing for like we should have like our solos scripted or anything like that. Right. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. Um, so there's always an element of of chance, and there's always that element of excitement, not knowing what's going to happen exact and exactly how it's going to happen, etc. But within that. I want the things that are supposed to happen to happen the way they're supposed to happen. Sure. And and actually, in a lot of ways, I think that's kind of what makes my music difficult is because I think that it feels natural enough that people want to just kind of sit back and relax. But then I'm always there's always some little twist and turn in the way I write where if you're not paying attention, you're it's going to get you. Sure. You know, sometimes yeah, yeah, there's yeah. like a seven bar phrase, a nine bar phrase. Or it or the melody would be very repetitive, but then like the next time it comes around, it's like a slight like embellishment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I feel like there's kind of a lot of times there's kind of two different schools of musicians. There's the musicians that just want to play and they don't want to have to think about like, you know, like what is it, left brain creativity or is it right brain creativity? And then the other side is the whatever. I think they've actually sure. disproven that stuff. It's like on both sides anyway. It's probably yeah yeah. But. But it's like, yeah, there's they, the kind of creative guys that don't want to think about reading and they don't want to think about ensemble playing. They just want to play the way they play. And then there's the other guys that are really thinking about that stuff. And I feel like to be really great on this, the my music, you have to do both of those things. Mm -hmm. you have, but you just have to know when to do them, when to turn that side of your brain off and when, when not to. Yeah, because you, you don't want anybody to wing it. And if you're sitting down to write the music and you're saying to yourself, this is going to be a slight variation on this next part. You want that to come out. It's not exactly. just do exactly. whatever. Yeah. Like you've, you've put the time into this. And there is a lot to be said for respecting the, um, the composer's efforts, the, the efforts that you put into making things work the way that you want them to work. Like, you don't just want to wing it. Yeah. I will say that what you're saying about the, the, the solos reminds me of uh, when, I was at, when I was at NEC, I studied with Jerry Berganzi, and he told us a story about going to see... Horace Silver's band in Boston at one point, and it was um, it was Junior Cook and Blue Mitchell, 
And he went to go see him the first night, and he was like, that was amazing. I'm going to go back and check him out the second night. And he was like, man, these solos sound similar to what I heard last night. And he went to talk to Junior Cook, and he said, man, you know, this might sound weird, but uh, it sounds like you guys were playing the same solos as last night, which is actually kind of amazing, I think, back to that, that Jerry was able to pick the stuff, you know, like, remember, I don't know if I'd remember it, but, but uh, Junior Cook said, yeah, well, we're going into the studio soon, so Horace wants us to get the solos together. See, that's exactly what I was talking about. So, like, when we were talking about earlier about getting the recording really clean. You know what I mean? So, like, mm-hmm. so like it can be more scripted than that. Like, that, necess- like that organic thing where it's going to be different every time, I think, is actually a failing point sometimes on jazz records where, like, it would have been better if they actually knew exactly the way they were going to do it when mm-hmm. they go into the studio. Because I think you can get away, away with it more in a live performance. You can kind of allow those kind of crazy moments to happen and you can get away with them more. But like sure. on a, on a, in, a, in a recording, it's like, like it's a snapshot. It's like a picture. So it's going to be like that the whole time. You know, yeah. It's going to be like that every time. For sure. That also reminds yeah. me of um, Lee Morgan's solo on Monin, where you can, hear, you can hear the alternate take of that. And even though it changes a little bit as he goes, there's still a, a, a concept that he was going for. So he could he could at least go for something and then embellish as he went. Yeah, I mean J.J. Johnson is also like notorious for doing that too. Like all of his alternate takes, um, feel like he plays very similar, similar solos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but there's that's got to be a spectrum. I mean, again, it's just a, it's like a, there are some people who are gonna say, all right, well everything I do is going to be completely different and I'm not sticking to the, its own you know one thing. And other people are gonna say this has to turn out the way that I want it to turn out. Yeah. But you're probably right. I mean, in terms of just an audience base, I'm sure there's a lot about jazz that people in general, the, the, the public, who's going to be maybe more drawn to, you know, I don't know, Nicki Minaj than Marie Schneider or something like that, you know, may not get into. But also it depends on the, the listener, I suppose, you know. Yeah. Do you think about live performances being like, I don't know if this is something that you'd consciously think of, but if you go into a live performance... Is there any sense for like, all right, there's going to be a little bit more chance in this, or do you think of them as the same thing? I know you're thinking about the recording as being sort of a reflection of the live performance, but do you think of live performance any differently? Like, do you stretch out more, or do you like allow? Yeah, for... I, I I like um, I like people being able to stretch more on the live on the live shows. In fact, it's funny because like a lot of times I'll go back and listen to recordings if I've ever recorded stuff on live shows, and like my tunes will be like 15 or 20 minutes long, mm-hmm. you know. And I'm like, wow, that tune is only like, you know, f- six minutes on the record, you know? Sure. And um, I like that because in, in a lot of ways, like sometimes like those types of things that can happen on the live gigs can sometimes influence like maybe new sections of the tune that I add on to it later. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, we got in, we got into this kind of interesting groove during the piano solo, but maybe that would be cool to do that every time. Maybe that's worth keeping, you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. I think I think other styles of music, I mean, I played in a in a Haitian band in uh, Miami. And a lot of times the way these guys would like kind of come up with new sections in the music is we would do like a rehearsal and the drummer would just like sing to the horns. He'd be like, you know what I mean? And then we would figure it out. And then we would like rehearse like these like little sections. And then the next time we would play that tune, he would kind of look at us. And then we would like add, like insert this like new section, this whole new like development into the tune that wasn't there before. And mm-hmm. over the course over the course of years of these guys having all of these like weird, like and the percussionists would have their own little things and the guitars would have their own little things and everyone had these like little extra things that were added like in post, 
and built over years. Now you you go to one of these gigs and you're like, how the hell do these guys know what to do? Like, how did they know that? Like, like the drummer will start playing some rhythm and then everyone else will jump in on it and it'll be like a super complex rhythm. They'll all jump in on it and know exactly when to stop and then they'll go back into the groove. And it's like, what? You know? Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. That's a real value too in having a band that can rehearse all the exactly. time and you can work out the details. That's something that, especially in New York, it is difficult to wrangle the same people at the same time and, and work out a regular gig enough that you can, like... I mean, it would be very difficult. You could write stuff out and have people learn the material, but it's a different thing to have that where you're, all right, we're doing a regular rehearsal and we're going to figure it out. Yeah. Because I've played with a lot of bands like that, and there's, there's definitely energy to, like, oh, yeah, we all know this stuff up and down because we played it 15,000 times. Exactly. That may actually be a feature of, like... When you think about the way that the Miles band played in the 60s... Like, that's a very improvisational approach, but they also played a million gigs together. Or, like, the Duke Ellington band, too. Like, they played, like, 364 days a year or something like that. Like, they could do anything. You know, they knew what was so, going to happen at any given time. Yeah, so, so that's, like, the irony of, like, these bands that we kind of perceive as being more organic-sounding is that they're actually just as prepared as rehearsed bands. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Maybe they didn't sure. actually have like a strict conversation about exactly what was going to happen, but they came to a conclusion by playing several times, you know? Yeah, so, sure. So like w within those, within like the perceived ca chaos, there's actually like a structure that, that, that is actually like keeping them all together. And maybe that's why it has such a vibe. Mm -hmm. you know? Sure. And that going back to Boston and, and my, and, and uh, my pitch for free music, there was a bit, there's a band in Boston. Do you know, do you know, uh, there's a band called The Fringe. With it was George Garzon, John Lockwood, and and Bob Gulati, um, and they played every night for many years. I, I don't know if they're still doing it at the same level. Unfortunately, um, Bob Gulati passed away a couple months ago, but they had played together for I don't know, thirty years or something like that, maybe more, maybe forty years or something like that. And they were they would play every Monday night in Cambridge, and it was totally free. But they knew each other's playing so well that they could do, they would like, there were things that I saw them do that was like magic. Like you'd be like, <laughs> how is it possible that on the, like they just would turn on a dime or something like that and be in a completely different place. Or they'd be playing tunes, then all of a sudden be in a different place. But it was clear that they all knew each other's playing so well. Yeah. I worry sometimes that there's just in, in sort of the modern approach, by modern, I mean, like right now, I don't know, who knows what's going to happen and jazz could blow up next year and all of a sudden we've all got gigs and we got, you know, we can play together in the same groups all the time. <laughs> but I, uh, I, I don't worry about it, but I always feel like, th like there's something missing if we can't have those regular either touring bands or you can't do two weeks at the five spot before you're recording or, you know, there isn't the same sense for, because the, maybe the, the economics isn't there. Um, in the same way that it used to be, to have that opportunity to play, you know, the same music over and over again. I don't know if there's a remedy to that, but I always kind of think it's a shame, you know. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's kind of like this like downward spiral because because I think part of the reason that there isn't as much opportunity is because we're not presenting finished products that people want to hear, and mm -hmm. because we're not presenting finished products that people want to hear, we don't have as much we don't have as much opportunity to put together those finished products. Sure. So like the only way to compensate for it is for people to just be like, well, I don't care that I'm not getting paid. Let's just go rehearse every week. So when we do play, it's really great. And people talk about it. And then hopefully through our effort, something will, will come of it. 
Mm-hmm. But like, I, I don't really sense that like a lot of times in the scene that people are willing to make sacrifices. People only want to jump into bands that are already established. It seems like no one's really like like willing willing to put in like the blood, sweat, and tears to make something as mm-hmm. a, as a cohesive. It's like it's like oh, I don't really want to play with that guy's band even if it's good because they don't have enough good gigs yet. You know? Sure. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah. for that, I'm really grateful because like a lot of the guys I've been playing with recently are always super down to play, even though like the majority of the stuff we're doing is not really paying anything. So that's been like really awesome. Um, sure. I would still like to rehearse more, but like you know you have to. You know? Yeah, of course. And that's a, I think that's a personal uh, that's a personality thing, but I always want to surround myself with those people who are down to play, who are there yeah. to do it because they want to do it. Exactly. I, I hear a lot, you know, there's a lot of people maybe in a little bit more of the commercial side of things who are like, I'm this is I'm not getting out of bed for less than this amount of money. Yeah. And I I'm t- I'm a totally uh, what's the best way to put it? Like I'm totally laissez-faire on all that. Like if that if your vibe is like I'm here, I'm in it for the money, that's great, man. <laughs> but that's not my <laughs> style. Like that's its own thing. I'm not going to call those people. And they're not going to call me either. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. fine. You know what I mean? But I am on your team on that for sure. Like it is a big um it's important that people want to put the time in. The the one tricky thing is, I don't know if you I'm sure that it's different. I I I had the opportunity to go down to Miami a couple times. I go down once a year to play a festival on the the um, Virginia Keys, and I love the scene there. I thought it was awesome, especially all the like how vibrant the whole music scene is and the different like uh, I don't know what, like all the different styles of music that you have going on down there. Um, but I'm sure the vibe is very different in many towns. You could actually have the opportunity to do that because there isn't that much going on. But in New York, so many people are here to do precisely what it is that they came to do. Like they want to play their music, so. I, I, your music may be that a detraction from them playing their music or your music might be an opportunity for them to meet other people so that they, they can do the thing that is what they want to do. Yeah. I think that, that that's kind of like, um, unfortunately it's like this, um, kind of like diva Devo isms that have in, infiltrated the jazz world where I feel like a lot of times it used to be more of a collective effort. And so we'd all put our, our brains, brains together and create something together and obviously, you know, my record has my name on the front of it, so I wasn't really, <laughs> I wasn't really fighting against that spirit very much myself. But um, yeah, it seems like you know, in the pop world, it's like it's everything centered around the lead singer, and you get all these different people working to make that one person sound good. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to, I feel like in the jazz world, like I think what's made our music great is the, that collective thing, like what every each individual brings, like into that. But now mm-hmm. that people are kind of seeing themselves more as like pop artists and like 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 separate islands, even the whole Instagram thing. How many followers do you have? You know what <laughs> I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, it's like it, sure, everyone's yeah. everyone's trying to promote their own brand instead of trying to really create the best music. You know? Mm-hmm. Sure. And in a lot of instances, I think if you are playing a music that requires a collective approach in that, like everybody's bringing their own personality to the table, you do have to, you have to be yourself. There's a balance, there's always a balance there. You have to be yourself and you have to play the way that you play, but you have to also accommodate the music as it is, whatever's happening. Yeah. You know, you have to be conscious of this, of the vibe that's happening and try to bring what you can to it and try to think about it as being your contribution to the greater whole in that particular instance. Yeah, but it's a tough balance. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if we'll ever solve it. I think part of the part of the answer may be that the the question is is the answer. Part of it is trying to find that balance. You know, 
All right, let's dive back into this record for a minute here. There's a couple things I wanted to try to <laughs> try to try to dive into. Yeah, we went we went way off there. Yeah. That's great, man. We're trying to get canceled, bro. We're we're going for it. <laughs> we'll have to get more controversial than that. Uh, anyway, all right. So you got a bunch of tunes on there that are instrumental. There's a the beginning is the first record, the first track rather. Double Visions. Is that a quintet? Is it? How many horns are on that? Uh, it's septet. Yeah, it's four. Okay, horns. septet. Yeah. That's the whole thing. And then piano, bass, and drums. And yep. then at times you've got vibes. You've got uh, a little Pandero in there, maybe some percussion stuff. Uh, yep. What other? What else you got? Electric bass. You got electric guitar in there at some point. Yep. Acoustic guitar. Maybe the most radical thing you've got in there is acoustic guitar, which rarely makes <laughs> rears its head in, in a jazz record. Well, yeah. Um, and then vocals. Who's the vocalist? Uh, Lauren Desberg. Okay. Yeah. Uh, those are beautiful songs, man. Is that a? Um, do you write the lyrics, or do you write the the melodies, or how does how do those come about? Um. Yeah, I mean, to be a hundred percent real, like I mean, all of the tunes, um, I I write the melody first, and then I go back and and find and try to find lyrics. Actually, I think the um, uh, I tried so hard. Mm -hmm. Um, I may have actually written that like kind of simultaneously. Um, like lyrics and melody at the same time, because like that tune actually was a tune that I I made on Logic. I was messing around with like, you know, like all the different um, sounds and stuff in there, and I came up with that little, um, the bo 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 like that little Montuno or uh, ostinato thing, mm -hmm. and um, and then I just started kind of like singing over the top of it, and I just like kind of came up with both of those things like a, at the same time. But generally sure. speaking, when I'm writing lyrics, I'm I'm doing it after like after the the melody, and I get the the vibe from the from the music and the chords, and then try to think about what type of lyric would actually fit with like with the way the music sounds. Sure. So you, you know? you're coming up with the sound of the music first, and then trying to find how to fit, uh, let's say, what the story is after the fact, or did you go in? Especially like I tried like. I tried so hard. Seems like it's got a story to it in particular. But was that something that you had in mind that you were trying to convey, or was that you wrote the some sounds came to you, and then you were like, "What is the story behind these sounds?" Exactly. I mean, you know, it's funny. I mean, without getting us for us without us getting off on like another crazy tangent. We're going in, man. Um, I'm telling you. I, I actually think in a lot of ways, like lyrics inhibit the actual emotion of music. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Because I think that there's certain things that can't be expressed in through, especially just one language. We're just like in in English. There's like so many expressions that exist in other languages that we don't even really process mm -hmm. in our heads as as native English speakers. But in addition to that, like sound and like the spectrum of 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 like hertz and like low to high and all of these different timbres with different resonances above. And I mean, like there's all of these different types of like emotional reactions that can that can happen outside of language and especially outside of our own language so sometimes i almost feel like putting lyrics on songs and we've all heard it too before if you've ever done like did you ever do like the um uh betty carter jazz ahead program no well like sometimes what happens in that because it's betty carter's program they mm -hmm. put a vocalist in every ensemble but like you have all these instrumentalists that are bringing tunes, and what ends up happening, the easiest way for the vocalists to find a place in those tunes is to write lyrics to the tunes. Sure. And so you end up hearing these tunes with lyrics, and it's like that tune sounds so much more mundane now with the lyrics. It doesn't work. Sure. It sounded mm -hmm. it had it had a much deeper emotional content 
when we weren't actually having to focus on what they were telling us the emotional content was. Everyone else, sure. everyone had like a separate um, experience that was probably deeper than when you tell everybody what their experience is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. sure. and, that's, and that's essentially what lyrics are. It's like, this is what you're supposed to be thinking about when you're listening to this song. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a great travesty when people will go and take, you know, uh, footprints or something like that, some tune that's already been established and then like retroactively put lyrics over it. I think that sometimes you get the same thing where you go, oh man, that tune was cool until it forced me to think in that one particular vein. I totally feel where you're coming from <laughs> in there. Although there are certain things like, I don't know, are you a, are you like a Bob Dylan guy? You like, do you like, uh, like folk music or even... I've, I've never really checked it out, but I do believe this is one of the things that's interesting about some of like that folk country Appalachian stuff is I mm -hmm. actually feel like the, um, this, like the lyrics and the singing in those actually fits the music more than a lot of times when I hear it in jazz. Mm hmm. OK. You know, sure. Maybe the precedent or, or the um, the dominant force in that is the lyrics. And then the music becomes like a secondary, like a support as opposed to the other way around. Something like that. Yeah. Or like, um, I don't know, like hip hop or something like that. I don't know. That's its own. Like the lyrics yeah. become their or the or the rhythm of the lyrics become its own. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you went through and you said, in, in all these songs, how many other tunes have lyrics to them? There's the two parts to Tried So Hard. Um, is there anything else on there? Because you have, the voice in, in some instances serves as not only an instrument, but, but at times it's like a background. Uh, like you use it as like a part of the ensemble or whatever, which is a cool effect yeah, without, um, it, without it being tied to lyrics. Yeah, uh, the Discord had lyrics also. That was the okay. other one. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, some of the other ones just had it as just like texture. Mm -hmm. So were you, was there a particular story you were trying to tell, or did you come up with it as you went along? What, which tune? Let's say I tried so hard. It's an ex either one of them. Well, that but. one was like, I mean, basically, I feel like the, like the sound of that tune kind of inspired the lyrics. I feel like it, like it sounds dark. It sounds emotional. It sounds like contemplative, like someone that's kind of like thinking about something that's like emotionally distressing, but they can't quite figure out exactly what that is. So I, I mean like the, the lyrics were basically talking about like being frustrated with the relationship and leaving mm -hmm. and like and like breaking up. Um and and also like the dealing with the frustration of like really trying to make something work but feeling like the other person wasn't putting in the same amount of effort. You know? Sure. Mm -hmm. Um so I mean I don't know. I mean like I can't really speak to it. I just kind of, I just kind of write music, man. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. But everybody's got their own, you know, like, all right. Like, you're not, you're not sitting around writing poetry and then waiting for that to turn into music. Like, no. it's something that it occurred to you. But, you. but you have to make a big leap, man. It's not like you write melodies and then all of a sudden you can write lyrics. Like, lyrics are hard and lyrics can ruin a tune. Like you're saying, for sure, I've heard a lot of songs that are like, this would be good, but the lyrics are terrible and it ruins the thing. Like, well, like you got to make a leap to, to get into that. Exactly. And, and it's funny because I actually, uh, I actually, like, listening back over time, like, the lyrics of Discord are pretty, like, you know, I'm not... I'm not thrilled. I don't think they're like super great. It, like, it's funny. I think like a lot of instrumentalists, when they write lyrics, we tend to be like overly emotive in the way we write. We don't know how to be subtle yet. And I mm -hmm. think that's something that comes with the maturity of being a better writer. I think the, the lyrics and I tried so hard are a little better and they're a little bit um, 
speaking to a broader picture instead of being so specific about you made you broke my heart and I felt so bad when you blah you know what I mean yeah yeah because yeah. like th those are the types of lyrics that I feel like really can take you out of like the emotional aspects of a composition sure it's that it's the stuff that's like a little bit more broad that speaks to like an experience that can still be individual for everybody but they mm -hmm. understand what that thing is I think those things can like hit harder instead of talking about a very specific thing that happened sure you know what no I mean? doubt yeah 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 that that makes a lot of sense and it I think there's a lot to in instrumental music I feel like sometimes you you ha you meet the audience halfway where you say like here's what we got but then the audience can can put their own life experience into it in whatever way. Sometimes you feel like, all right, this is what the music is saying, but who cares if that's what the person who wrote it was necessarily intending? It's that you you meet somewhere in the middle. And if there's if there's a way to write lyrics where not to say that it's abstract, but that you that you leave space for the own for every individual to put themselves into it, that gives you a lot more maybe to work with or something. Exactly. Or and that's reach more I, people. And that's the difference between like good lyrics and uh, Cardi B's new hit single. Yeah, <laughs> right. Isn't that There's, number one. That's I mean, number one, bro. We got it. This is like. Well, but, okay. but but you know what I mean. Like that's like the epitome of leaving nothing to the imagination. Correct. Like literally, in many, in many respects. Like literally, just trying. Like, <laughs> you know, well, whatever. Yeah. She's making. She's making millions of dollars. She's got her own thing going on, but I, I don't know. But yeah. you know what I mean. Like I, I mean, like people listen to that song and they have an emotional reaction. Um. But it's not like a deep emotional reaction. It's it's mm -hmm. like playing it's playing to like our, our very guttural animalistic tendencies, which are I think are not the ones that I personally try to get to get people to like to listen to. I want I want like a transformative and like a transcendent experience when I when mm -hmm. I listen to music. I want something that takes me out of my out of myself um, and makes me feel something like profound and. Um, a lot of a lot of times, that's probably part of the reason I don't like lyrics because lyrics literally tell me that this is what this is this mundane, like of the world topic that we're talking about. I'm talking about my truck and the big tires and driving down the old country roads and meeting up with my old lady at the bar to have a beer and have a conversation. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, yeah. So, like, so it's like, I mean, how deep can you really get when when you're talking it's a, about it's a, just a specific narrative in that regard and and it's also specific to culture too so like now it's no longer a timeless piece of music because if someone a few hundred years ago heard that what they're like what is a truck what is sure a, what is this restaurant that you went to i don't know what that is you mm -hmm. know what i mean sure whereas yeah. like the more timeless pieces of music are are things that like really speak to something that's integral to all of like humanity mm -hmm. you know what i mean like sure. it's, it's timeless yeah and I think there are probably ways to tell stories and still leave it open-ended. Uh, yeah. There's certainly an element to listening to music. Like, I want to be able to go revisit an album I've heard 15 times or a thousand times or any number of times and still get something new out of it because I'm bringing something else in my own experience to the table. Uh, but I think about that with a lot of old Motown lyrics, where even though it might be telling a specific story, it still is a little open-ended enough. It, it, a lot of, in my mind, just for whatever reason, there was an era in the 60s where these guys were writing these Motown tunes, and it still seems timeless. Like, heard it through the grapevine or whatever, or any of this stuff, like, somehow... Like, if you wrote a tune now that was talking about, like, you know, texting somebody or, like, your, you know, how your instagram followers are doing or something like that you'd be like what is you know in a couple of years you'd be like what even is this exactly but there are certain things that can maybe touch on the human condition in a in a timeless way and still yeah. get lyrics across but yeah it's an interesting question as to how much that 
uh, anchors somebody to the story itself and lets people, you know, interpret it on their own terms. Uh, Well, I'll tell you, Discord is one of my favorite tunes on the record. And one of the reasons for that is that you seem in that one to really lay into the groove. And there's a thing in, speaking of like maybe the difference between, or an element of jazz that people really liked that we've dispensed with almost completely, is that idea that you can listen to old Art Blakey records or you can listen to... Um, like you can listen to Philly Joe Jones just cook, just swing, and just play. And it, it doesn't have to be everybody playing everything they can all the time. It's just we're going to take five minutes of playing a track or a lot of Oscar Peterson stuff. All right, this is the groove. We're just going to swing. It's going to be, you know, cross stick on four, and we're just going to swing and have a, a good time till the end. And that seems lost where everybody's like, let me. Now, sometimes, you know, again, it just depends on the context, but it seems like all jazz now is like, let me interject every possible thing that I've learned forever and that was a tune that as i was listening to i was like this is just grooving man we're just cooking this is fun you know that's great i'm I'm glad you you felt that because like that that's another thing i've i mean this this haitian band i used to play with is called class with a k um that's one of the things like i've really like started thinking about a lot when i was playing with that band because you have like these little interludes and these moments of interest but like for like a lot of times after we get through like the lyric of the song these guys would just literally just play the groove for like 10 minutes and everyone would dance and it would feel, mm-hmm. feel fucking amazing, man. Yeah. That shit was like amazing. And yeah. like, I miss that about jazz sometimes, just the groove. And I think it kind of goes back to that Devo, Diva syndrome thing where everyone's trying to create their own brand all the time instead mm-hmm. of trying to create the best music. Because it's like, it's like, if I'm just playing this repetitive figure on the piano, no one's going to notice me. I have to do something you know what I mean? It's like sure. 80, it's like ADD music. It's like, oh, did you hear what the you know? <laughs> did you hear what the piano player just did? Oh, man, did you just, but the drummer just did that. The bass player goes, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like everyone's like always trying to create this thing instead of just like laying into that, into that, you know, like the the beauty of what they're making together, of how all those things fit together, the puzzle pieces. Sure. You know. Yeah. Yep. It's funny the ADD thing, man, because it's it's like the worst. In that respect, it's the worst of both worlds. Because it's like, oh yeah, something's gonna happen in every minute, but it's gonna go on for twenty minutes. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, all right, we got people who are interested in different things happening all the time and can also sit in one place, you know, and and check out one tune for a long well, it's, time. Well, it's really impressive, you know. It's like like I hear like like a lot of bands that are really impressive, but like, again, like my my personal you know, like use for music is like, I want to, I want to be like transported. And I do think that like, like something about like groove and keeping things like a little bit more simplistic, you know? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, there's something there for that. Yep. That's, that's always, that's always something I've really enjoyed about African music and reggae yep. music. And a lot of, a lot of, I would say, uh, you know, music that was, that was directly descended from, from the African approach is that a lot of the time it's just going to be, it's almost like a hypnotic. We're in this world for as long as we're going to be there. We're just going to. It's this is your part. That's the same thing actually with like, I don't know, cumbia music and various things like that. Like a lot of it is like, here's your part. You are going to play this. Like here's you're playing the conga. This is your one thing that you do until the end of the song. But there's something about that that everybody committing to the same thing is really kind of remar- you know remarkable. Yep. But in my mind, the blend of all the things, whatever you can take from all those worlds, is you know, is. Uh, is something else, you know, if you could piece everything together. Like, there's nothing wrong with James Brown being able to play that groove for 20 minutes and then also, you know, Maceo Parker being able to take a wild solo or something like yeah, that yeah. or whoever, you know. Uh, so, the rec- my favorite tune on the record is Freedom. And 
there the intro to that is absolutely gorgeous you did an amazing job with that it oh, almost chokes me up every time <laughs> and the other thing is is the tune when i first heard it uh i might have got a sneak preview on on that but uh, that 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 melody was stuck in my head forever but usually when melodies get stuck in my head i start to get disdainful you know but that was like <laughs> the best melody that could have been stuck in my head because at the time i think it was like early may or whatever and uh and when i first heard it and it was like you know we were deep in the throes of this whole coronavirus thing and people get real gloom and doom you know what i mean and i understand you know you're in your house for six months or whatever it is and uh you know i felt like that was really like a it was really kind of a an optimistic track. I don't know if you think about it like that, if you think about like optimism or pessimism in your music, but what 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 brought that tune into existence? And is there anything you were thinking about or did you just get a melody in your head or how the, what's what's the way you think about it? Yeah, man. I mean, like just like the lyrics, like a lot of times I just I just write tunes. I just like sit at the piano and I and I and I play something and then later on I think about like what type of emotion or what type of feeling like that 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 those sounds evoke and then that's how i usually end up titling the pieces mm -hmm. you know what i mean so sure. free so freedom to me like just like you know like the the chord progression is basically like it's like a four one four one five that's like what it is for all the a sections it's mm -hmm. like well super creative man and uh <laughs> <laughs> but like uh it just sounds very like very like western very american like very um and it also has kind of like a certain patriotic feel to the way the melody is constructed, um, mm -hmm. and and there is like that hopeful hopefulness, you know. So that's where like that like the title came from. I was like, there is like a certain. It sounds like you know like the American, the American dream, man. Like you know like we have hope. We're going on to the frontier to forge a better life. You know this is, you know. Sure. And um, yeah, I mean that's like that's so so the. The, the sound of the music is what inspired the title. The title didn't inspire the sound of the music. Cool. And it wasn't, you know? it wasn't an idea in advance. It was th this is the sound, and then you sort of had this picture come to you as a part of the, you know, in writing the music and hearing the sound and everything. Yeah, it's like, you know, I just kind of sit down. I just start, you know, just painting on the canvas, and then as things inspire me, I kind of just keep, keep working with it. The, mm -hmm. uh, the intro actually was written, like, years later after the original melody. I wrote that mm -hmm. melody... Um, right after I finished my undergrad. And that's part of the reason why I named it Freedom, too, because I was, like, so happy to, to get the hell out of there. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> out um, of Juilliard, you're talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I wrote the, uh, the intro later. Um, I felt like it needed, it needed something else. Um, sure. Yeah. Brings it in well. Brings it in. Was that... Was, now, how would you think of studying at Juilliard? Was that a... Um, were you anxious to get out because it was the end of your undergrad, or was it was it uh, the vibe there? <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, it, at this point, like, I don't really have any like malice towards anybody or anything anymore. But like, there was like like a very kind of toxic culture at the school. To be honest, like a lot of the a lot of the faculty members, I felt like were people there not because they wanted to teach, but because they thought it would help further their career. There, again, there's that Devo, Devo syndrome where it's just like about, about me all the time. It's just, you know, and to me, like teaching is like one of those places where it's like, you know, you really need to be there because you want to like impart knowledge, not just there because you think it's going to help you rub shoulders with other great jazz musicians and then get gigs, you know? 
And sure. so, th so th th there was like, and then there was also like kind of sometimes a competitive spirit where it was almost like a certain jealousy from faculty to students. Um, and then also there was just like administrative kind of weirdness and stuff that would actually kind of pit the students after each other. You know what I mean? Interesting. Okay, sure. Like yeah, where yeah. like you would feel like weird being friends with certain people because you feel you would feel like it would affect your political status. <laughs> At this, you know what I mean? It was kind of like sure, it was, I get it was, it's just fun. I mean, I get it. I get what you're saying. It's just funny that that all all life. of all of that being said, I wouldn't trade those four years to, and like I wouldn't erase it and try to do something else. I think that it was important for me to experience those types of things. And mm -hmm. and and I still have you know I still have a lot of great friends that I met there and a lot of musicians that I that I was able to play with and stuff that I'm really grateful for those experiences. However, it was rough. There was some like a lot of rough stuff, you know. Sure. Uh, so it's always interesting that <laughs> how how varied the cultures of different schools can be. I mean, it, it depends on all kinds of different things, you know. Yeah. The, the region or whatever, the the history, the who knows. And Juilliard seems like that and kind of an intense place, you know. So I'm always interested <laughs> in how people. How it's people funny. It's funny what, what when I go there now, it seems like it's been it's really chilled out a lot more. Um, it seems like way like even the students like I mean when I was in school there were so many characters in school like like just people like uh, like name a few I don't know if you know Kyle Athade. Um he's a vi he plays vibes on the album um, uh, Eddie Barbash uh, is a sax player he's played on the Late Show and he does like he's actually like playing like a lot of country music on on saxophone now oh wow um, Lucas Pino was there John Batiste was there Chris Bowers. Um, Trying to think. I mean, there was a lot of people that were just like very strong personalities, and it was just really like this hilarious like like environment having all of these people that like have <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure, sure. Like no doubt. like all of these people like you would never expect to see in the same room again now, right? Because like they all do such different things, you know. Mm -hmm. In my mind, that's a lot of the value of going to music school. In some respects, like you could just show up and study with somebody or study with a couple of different people, but you show up to school and you meet all kinds of different people coming from different places, and it's kind of an interesting uh, melting pot of different personalities. Man, that's always yeah. a part of the part of the thing, you know. Yep. Uh, listen, where'd you come up with the name for Jam Number Two in C Sharp Minor? <laughs> uh, you know, who knows. I mean, like, <laughs> like the, the the idea was is like uh, I would have like these kind of jam sessions at my house all the time when I was in Miami. People would come mm -hmm. over and we'd just like hang out, have a couple drinks, and then we would just kind of like naturally just start playing. And uh, one of my friends that lives here in the city now, uh, his name is Marius. He always would bring over. He would come to my house and he would bring sometimes even a sousaphone with him. Nice. He'd bring like a sousaphone and he'd have like a backpack with a bunch of percussion instruments. And then everyone would be at the party. He would come in and start playing. And everybody's like, come on, man. What are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then eventually someone else would go grab one. And then it would turn into this thing. And so, like, a lot of times I would come up with these, like, little, like, piano, like, riffs. I'd always be playing piano. I would come up with these, like, little riffs that later on I would end up turning into tunes. And so I came up with, like, three of them that I turned into tunes. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll like maybe this will be like a little series, and I'll try to like create twelve of these different tunes in all twelve keys, you mm. know. So this one's in C sharp. Um, I have a big band chart that's um, in C sharp major. Then there's another one that's like uh, jam number one in in C minor, you know. So I have all these. All right, like, it's a series. And, and and basically they're all just kind of like um, they're basically like supposed to be like simple like riff based tunes. 
with like simple mm -hmm. chord progressions that are basically kind of like just more about jamming rather than like strict execution. Sure. You know, do you do you feel like that gives you a different opportunity? Because so often you're trying to be very precise about the music that you're writing and you're writing for seven people or a big band or whatever. Is it fun for you to just like break it down and just do, all right, this is a simple repetitious thing and we're just going to have fun on it? Yeah, it's nice, you know. I mean, sure. I, yeah, I, I like I like doing that. At the same time, though, then like you start getting into what we were talking about with like the groove oriented stuff where you want people that even though it's like really simple, you want people to just stick with that that part so it really grooves because and then like you end up coming across like this other problem where now like it's a simple tune. So now everyone wants to embellish a lot. So mm -hmm. then it ends up developing into this complex thing anyway, even though it's supposed to be simple. You know what I mean? Sure, right. Yeah. And in jazz world, it's easy to make things complicated when they could otherwise be simple. Yeah. There's a, there was, for a long time, I was writing, I, was, I just I found myself writing all non-net charts and big band charts, whatever I was doing. And uh, so I put together this electric band, and I was like, all right, here's the, here's the, here's the deal. Every tune is one line of music. So I wrote seven tunes on a sheet of paper where it was just like the key and the bass line, and that's what we're dealing with. And it, was, it felt so liberating. You lose, of course, the, the control and being able to um, refine what it is that you're doing, but there's always something to like, all right, here's the deal. Like, we're going to yeah. play, you know. That's cool, man. That's something else. Do you find now you've... So you've released the album now. How do you think about releasing music in 2020 not 2020 particularly but like you know do you find like some people talk about their albums as being um like uh business cards other people are like this is my soul this is like a piece of art that i've created in this one place like do you find are you thinking about it like here's a bunch of tunes that i want to put out that reflects who i am or was this like this is like a piece of art unto itself that wants to be it's listened to from start to finish uh, to be honest, I was thinking about it more of just like, um, of like documentation, like, like, you know, like I wanted to make sure that I had, uh, like a record of like all of my music, you know, no pun mm -hmm. intended, you know, but sure, no, no, but that makes sense. Sure. I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like, and, and that's part of the reason I didn't just record all of my newest stuff because like, like if I really wanted to come out and say, this is who I am as a musician, like this is exactly who I am, then I would have recorded the, the most recent stuff that, I, that I've come up with because I think that would have been like given the, the clearest picture of who I currently am. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I mean like my, my intention in, in, in the record was just to record music that sounds good and that hopefully people enjoy listening to. I didn't really have like any specific like, you know, super deep thing that I was going for. There wasn't any political you know, agenda or anything. I'm just just trying to make some some music that's fun to listen to. That's you know what I mean. Cool. And, and yeah, I wanted yeah. to, I wanted to make make sure that I, I recorded all of my all of my music that I think was worth recording before I move on to everything else because then I know it's never gonna I'm never gonna record it. You mm -hmm. know. Sure. Because like some yep. of the stuff is already going on like ten years old, so I wanted to make sure that it, it was documented. You know. Sure. Mm -hmm. eventually yeah. eventually i hope that like my discography will catch up to like where i actually currently am because i yeah. would like to eventually like make one of those records where like this is javier nero now you know yeah yep i totally get that that makes yeah. a lot of sense so now what's next you've been writing do you do you, do you regularly lead a big band I know you have big. You write a lot of big band music. And last, what was it? A couple of years ago, you won the Ithaca College Big Band. Oh yeah, uh, composition competition. 
and then you, you there was another one two years ago uh, that you had in there. Uh, do, you, do you have any do you have any aspirations to record a big band or are, Man. You, are you doing septet stuff or what's the ne- what's the next project for you? Shoot, I mean, I would love to do the big band stuff. I just think that it's going to be such an undertaking, and like my my big band music is very difficult. Um, it's just going to require like a lot of a lot of uh, like rehearsal, a lot of time, and uh, I don't know. I guess like I feel I feel still like too uh, afraid to try to do it yet. Sure. Um, but like I mean I I want to. Um, I still have a lot of um, septet music too um, that needs to be recorded. I probably have like two or three albums worth of of other septet stuff, more uh, more recent music um, that I'd like to record also. Uh, in addition to the big band stuff. But yeah, we'll see. Great. Yep, we'll have to see how everything goes for yeah. the next little while and. Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing what you come up with next. Cool, man. Yeah, thank you. Yep. Great. Well, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add? Anything else we should top off and close out with? Any life advice or <laughs> profound comments or whatever? Uh, I don't know, man. I guess I guess not. Um, go check out my, my album. Um, all, everyone that's listening, uh, go check out the music. I think there's something on there for everybody. Uh, people that don't even like jazz, I think we'll find a few, at least a few tunes that they'll like. I think that's one of the advantages of the variety um, that's on the album. Um, and I think it'll keep, keep your interest. Like, I mean, yeah, so I mean, I, that's basically all I have to say. The totally album's on, agree. Yeah, I mean, the where, album's where can on they all find of the... It? Oh yeah, <laughs> the album's on all of the major streaming sites: uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify. Um, there's also tracks up on YouTube. Um, I have videos on YouTube. Um, Bandcamp, obviously, I, is actually probably the the preferred place to buy it because buy the oh, albums, buy yeah. the albums, everybody. Support the musicians. Buy some records, man. Yeah, it's a big, it's a the big band deal. the Bandcamp version I have uploaded is actually a, a higher res version too. So that's. Um, also another reason it's preferable to go in there nice yeah. the perks great right on well thanks a lot Javier great talking to you man I appreciate it cool man thank you yeah thanks for having me on here alright gang another super fun mildly controversial episode of Jazztopia thanks so much for tuning in today if you like the show you can follow us on uh, SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash jazztopia podcast. Uh, and you can also find us on all of the various streaming platforms and services, various things like that. Uh, big thanks to Dr. Nero for joining us today to talk about his new album, Freedom, on Outside In Records. Join us next week on Wednesday, every Wednesday. Next week we'll be talking to... The great cornetist Stephen Haynes. We had a really interesting discussion. It was a sort of was a philosophical uh, journey through his career in free music, I guess I would say. I don't exactly know what he would say, but it was a fascinating conversation, and I think you're going to like it a lot. we got another couple of weeks coming up of some really interesting conversations, so be sure to follow us here. Check it out. Tell your friends. Uh, ooh, we've got a uh, we've got a Patreon now. Find us on patreon.com slash jazztopia. And uh, that's all I got for you for now. So uh, everybody have a wonderful time out there in Corona world. And we'll see you next week. All right, gang. See ya.